You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So you need a new car, let your fingers take a walk. Do the business die for the born again flock. You'll be keeping all your money in the kingdom now. And you'll only drink milk from a Christian cow. Don't you go casting your bread to keep the heathen well fed. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 139, and this is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'm joined on the line today by Michael Farmer, uh, who is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? I'm all right. How about you? I'm doing pretty well overall. Also coming at you is David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at Central Christian College in Kansas. David, how are you? Oh, pretty decent. Can't complain. How are you, sir? I'm also doing well. I'm also doing well. Hey, humanists, we have got some news for you, and it won't be news if you've been listening to us for a while, but we do have new programs coming up. We've got some more episodes of Christian Humanist Profiles that should be coming your way before too long, the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'll also be producing new episodes in the near future. And, of course, if you haven't heard yet, there are two new shows joining the network. One of them, The Sectarian Review, features Danny Anderson, who was a host for several months last school year, uh, doing some poetry, doing some cultural criticism. Ought to be some good stuff. And also, uh, The Book of Nature, which is our new science and mathematics podcast. Uh, It is hosted by three fellows who have been uh, guests on the Christian Humanist podcast before. Also ought to be top-notch quality stuff. Be sure to watch the Facebook page and the website. That's where we will announce the launch of those new shows. Well, this is an episode that uh, I kind of enjoyed reading for. Uh, I know that in pregame, Michael said that he didn't, but we're going to be talking (laughs) about the treatise on idolatry uh, by the early Christian theologian Tertullian. Uh, and David, you're our, our biography guy. We go to you when we need some background. So take a few minutes here at the outset. Tell us about Tertullian and what particular challenges stood before him in the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, the sorts of things that set the table for his treatise on idolatry. Right. So Tertullian, whose actual name was very long and Roman, and I've forgotten it already, um, but it ends with Tertullianus, and so that's the, the, I guess that's what stuck. Tertullian is how he's known. Uh, Tertullian was uh, an anti-Nicene father, uh, father of the church before the Council of Nicaea. Um, he was born somewhere in the middle of the second century and died somewhere in probably the second quarter of the third century. We don't really have clear dates on either one of those. Tertullian is one of those uh, writers who's mainly known because of his writing and a few small mentions of him by um, by later Christian uh, historians. He's sometimes called the father of Latin theology um, because he wrote in Latin, and some of the terms that he used uh, in his writings have stuck around, especially in Trinitarian theology, like Trinitas, the word Trinity itself, the use of the word persons to to uh, distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit, and the use of the word substantia to talk about that essence they have in common. Um, he wasn't canonized because he became a schismatic later in life, so he's not Saint Tertullian, but still he was widely respected. Um, there's a short bio of him in Jerome's Lives of Illustrious Men who describes him as a man of keen and vigorous character, uh, a citizen of the city of Carthage in the province of Africa, and he 
flourished mainly in the reign of Emperor Septimus, uh, Septimius Severus and Antoninus Caracula and wrote several volumes which we pass by because they are well known to most. So when Jerome was writing, Tertullian's theological writings were so so well known that he doesn't even feel like he needs to list them. Um, he mentions that in his later life he lapsed into the doctrine of Montanus, and so uh, yes, uh, Tertullian became a Montanist, and is uh, and Jerome says that he lived to a decrepit old age and composed many small works, which don't uh, don't remain. I am I am bad with early church heresies. Can one of you mm-hmm. explain Montanism in twenty five seconds? Oh, good. 25 seconds might be a tall order. Uh, (laughs) Montanism was one of the very strict ethical movements in the early church. Uh, And by and large, I mean, it arises uh, as a response to what they perceive. And mind you, this is during the age when Christianity is still a persecuted faith. uh, But there's a perceived laxity as the faith grows. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Montanus, I believe, was one of two prophetic figures who rise up david is that how you remember it as well yeah the the um the rigorist morality was was typical of montanism but also a uh an embrace of the ecstatic as part of worship um montanus himself claimed to be a new prophet in uh, the age of the holy spirit and to be uh kind of an an in an in time prophet um it was mm-hmm. it had his whole movement had a very eschatological feel in the sense that uh the the end is just around the corner and I'm the one who comes just before the end says montanus right um and- also their view of uh the role that women took in worship was somewhat different than the than the traditional view and that was something that that scandalized the uh the mainstream church Mm-hmm. It's interesting because until I mean until you mentioned this thing about aestheticism, I uh, I was ready to say that this is the heresy you would expect from a guy like Tertullian. I know I know we'll get to this, but the uh, mm-hmm. the kind of ethical rigor is what I would expect. I don't see much aesthetic worship in him at all. He, he right. doesn't, he doesn't mm-hmm. strike me as any kind of prefiguring of Pentecostalism or right. Like that. Well, this is something that he drifts into fairly late in his life. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and and just as a bit of clarity, and this is something I didn't pick up on until seminary, so I figure I'll go ahead and throw this in here. The much later trend in the Roman Catholic Church, we're talking the Enlightenment age of ultramontanism, doesn't mm. mean that they're really, really rigorous. That's derived <laughs> from the Latin word for mountain, so oh, ultramontanism. It's, it's, it's not the movement founded by ultramontanists? <laughs> no, no. It's, it, it is the movement that says that the uh, supreme authority of the Church should be ultra montanus over the mountains over in rome rather than right. in france <laughs> no, no but i i really did i mean when i saw that you know uh you know a cardinal richelieu for in, for instance was opposed by ultra montanus i thought it was because of some sort of you know moral laxity uh but it turns <laughs> out that's a geographic term yeah yeah so not the same thing right um Sorry to derail us, but uh, I mean, <laughs> when when someone as important as Tertullian goes into a heresy, it seems worth it to know what kind of heresy it is and to see if we can spot it mm-hmm. in the, in these earlier writings. Oh, absolutely! And honestly, I mean, this is one of the many things that makes Tertullian so fascinating to me mm-hmm. is that he is such an important figure who, at the same time, the church cannot ultimately elevate. And say, in him we see a saint of the church. He's kind of the negative image of Origen, right? I mean, if you if you've got a if you've got your Aristotelian virtue schema, if Origen goes too far toward universalism for most uh, early Christians, mm-hmm. Tertullian probably goes too far in the other direction. Hmm. Wouldn't you say? And I mean, they're they're both yeah. interesting because they're both these hugely important figures who nevertheless aren't canonized it's not saint origin either as far as i know yeah no it's not it's not well they were both polarized figures on a number of different uh axes (laughs) oh sure sure yeah this is this is a game that we could play i think fruitfully um between origin and tertullian for a while but Mm -hmm. you know rails um, right. There's, there's an epic rap battle that probably will never be produced. 
I don't know. Uh, Tertullian, we, we know him best as an apologist and a polemical writer. Um, he was apparently always ready to suit up and wade into the fray at the slightest provocation. And uh, he had a gift for it. Um, I think I think he's one of the most readable and engaging patristic writers because he reminds me he reminds me of a bit of Luther and of Erasmus because he has he's got a canon and he's got a rapier. He can be really, really witty and cuttingly smart and he can just smack you around. Um, and mm. I, I, I find that I find that entertaining. Uh, <laughs> challenges that he faced. Um, so we're in the middle of the second century and going into the beginning of the third Nero and Caligula are still strong memories, and there aren't even dreams of Constantine yet. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, uh, there were some local persecutions, but uh, my understanding is that at the time there wasn't anything um, empire-wide. Uh, Septimius Severus, uh, even Tertullian himself says that Septimius Severus uh, had a favorable disposition towards uh, Christians, and Tertullian tells a story about uh, some Christian in his court anointing him and healing him at some point. Um, there was antagonism between the Roman uh, mainstream culture and the Christians, but it wasn't so hostile that writing apologies would be completely pointless. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest challenge that he faced is that the imaginary secular space that we have in our culture where our civil life is supposed to occur without the interference of religion just didn't exist in Tertullian's world. Um, every aspect of the culture was conveyed, was pervaded by Rome's religion. Um, when, when I teach Greco-Roman myth, uh, I begin by showing a slideshow of, of kind of the different major Greco-Roman gods and on each of those slides, there's a picture of a coin with the gods' images. Um, I mean, this was this was this was a time when when even the currency um, could have a god looking back at you. So, uh, you know, this this is this is Tertullian's world, and that's and that's the, that's the challenge that he faces. He's a polemicist who's in a culture who's living in a culture in which the thing he wants to fight is around him everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to get him to lay his guns down, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, uh, sections one and two of this treatise, uh, in my mind, are, are just one of the great rhetorical performances of early Christian theology, and they're not to be missed. Um, how pervasive, how invasive, how abrasive is idolatry, according to the opening run of this treatise? Uh, all, all, it's everywhere. It's om omnipresent. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the rhetorical performance uh, really throughout the treatise, but especially in those first two sections, is mm -hmm. amazing. Tertullian, I believe, was a lawyer by training, and uh, it is hard for me not to think of, like, Perry Mason here. Because <laughs> uh, he, 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 he asks this series of questions to which he then provides the answer, right? And you can imagine him cornering the witness in a courtroom and trying to get the uh, the answer he wants out of them. And, and the witness, of course, is uh, everybody in the entire world at all times, mm -hmm. always. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just going to read a little bit of this in case our, our listeners didn't. Uh, Set aside names. Examine works. The idolater is likewise a murderer. Do you inquire whom he has slain? If it contributes aught to the aggravation of the indictment, no stranger nor personal enemy but his own self. By what snares? Those of his error. By what weapon? The offense done to God. By how many blows? As many are his, his idolatry. I idolatries. He who affirms that the idolater perishes not will affirm that the idolater has not committed murder. And so forth and so on. It's, it's, it's really, really well written. And, and if you've ever read any Tertullian, you would expect this. I think he's most famous for a, or an earlier treatise called The Apology. And that, that mm -hmm. also yeah. is a rhetorical tour de force. Although in some ways not as effective as this. And that might be because I find his argument here to be overstated. And so because it bothers me a little bit uh, and a lot in some <laughs> places, it's, it's, it's easier to recognize how well written it is mm -hmm. um, than if I agreed with it, where I would just think the force of it comes from its truth. But yeah, it's, it's just excellently written. And, and his entire point here is not just that idolatry is everywhere. 
his point is that idolatry leads to all sins and is at the root of all sins and somehow follows from all sins. So idolatry is almost becomes just a synonym for sin for him. To, to, to sin, to Tertullian, if I'm reading him correctly, is to worship a God other than the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so really, if you're doing anything other than what you're supposed to be doing, you are an idolater. And if, and, and because, because idolatry leads to all sins, if you're an idolater, you're also in some sense a murderer, or at least you're standing in the same space as people who are committing murderers because they're idolaters. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he writes this so well that it's like you get tied up in these rhetorical vines and b- before you realize it, it's very hard to argue with him because, because the argument is made so well. He's, you know, he's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Any bits that you'd point out, David? Well, not, not so much the, uh, um, idolatry is murder, but he does go a bit into idolatry as, um, as adultery and as prostitution, and there he can pull in all kinds of polemic from the prophets. All right, he can pull in Hosea. Um, he can pull in, you know, he can pull in those those kinds of things. Um, idolatry is theft of God's proper glory. I mean, it, it, he he can he can pull in all those things. And on one hand, uh, in in some of those, he's 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 pulling in he's pulling in scripture. He's just doing what prophets do. But on the other hand, it reminded me of um, Thomas Aquinas's treatment of pride as mm-hmm. a as a capital sin, as a sin that is a fountainhead of other sins. Right. And he he seemed to be doing something very similar to that with idolatry. Idolatry as as a kind of summative sin from which others grow, or in which others are contained in their essence. That I I I, I thought that was really interesting and cool and i've heard sermons like it <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know what what impresses me the most is that you know by the end of section two when you get into you know the rest of the treatise which by comparison moves at a more deliberate pace mm-hmm. uh you know you are utterly convinced that yes idolatry is the worst thing that could ever happen and it's all over and it's going to destroy us and we have to think about it. I mean, it, it, it really sets up a motivation for taking on the rest of the treatise, which by comparison, you know, is very deliberate and very, you know, concerned with citing texts and so on and so forth. Whereas the first two, although, I, I mean, I'll, I'll grant what you say that uh, he does allude to scriptures. He mm-hmm. doesn't slow down and say, you know, uh, you know, as we see in the, you know, opening sections of the Gospel of Matthew, you know, I mean, it's just boom, 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 boom. It's, it's more yeah. allusion than it is uh, reference. Which is, a, which is completely in the style of classical rhetoric, right? Because you, you, right. Begin, you begin with this attention grabber that sets out the plan of your – oh, man. I just remembered I'm going to have to teach freshman comp in a few weeks. Uh, you, begin, <laughs> you, you, begin, you begin with this attention grabber that sets the the uh, the map of your piece, and and then later you circle back around and start providing hard evidence. But he shouldn't be providing hard evidence based on his own training. In in this opening section, what he's supposed to do is is suck you in and 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 mm-hmm. make it where you agree with him before he's even made the argument itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the scriptural flourishes are there to get. Uh, to get a kind of anchor in the conscience of his Christian reader who isn't convinced that um, purely civic observances of, you know, civic pro forma observances of, of the civil religion are really that big of a deal. That's the person that he's got to, that's the target he has to soften. And so <laughs> thus the bombast. Which, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure such a thing exists because... Tertullian wrote 2,000 years ago, but it would be interesting to read a rhetorical analysis, not just of this piece, but of all the other ones, because his audience is different for for these different treatises. And the only other one I've read is the Apology, which is, uh, you know, as the title suggests, addressed not to Christians, but to the people who are persecuting them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it would be interesting to see where he begins in all of these different books he's writing. Where what mm-hmm. what the what the common ground he he believes he shares with his readers is, but I won't be writing that book. 
<laughs> That's Normally. fair enough. Because I'm, I'm not a rhetorician. Well, David, before we get into the more ethically troubling prohibitions of the latter parts of this treatise, I figured this might be a good chance to get some John Calvin in here because we haven't in a while. Mm-hmm. And I figure I'd let you go go ahead and get the assist and Michael can take the shot. Uh, how does this text treatment of idolatry as a root of all other sorts of sins stack up against what Calvin does in book one of the Institutes? Okay. Book one of the Institutes is is the the book in which Calvin is mainly concerned with the knowledge of God because the knowledge of God is the true God, the God that's actually there, is is the knowledge that frames every other thought that we ought to have. Um, the the quote from the beginning, uh, I think it's like even the second paragraph of the Institutes, is that we don't have a proper understanding of ourselves um, until we've ascended uh, into a proper understanding of God and then returned from that contemplation. Um, that uh, Calvin observes in that second paragraph that that humans left on their own are entitled to inflate uh, inflate their their sense of of goodness and moral worth in the face of the ultimate uh, goodness and moral worth of God, and that only uh, only an understanding of the God who is there, the real God, can deflate that human vanity and pride. So he's he's mainly concerned in Book One with establishing. This this ultimate God who is going to put us and all of our thoughts of everything else into place. Uh, it's in that context that in uh, chapter eleven of book one he calls uh, the human mind uh, a lot of a lot of uh, translations say a perpetual factory of idols. The the one that I read uh, the beverage has a perpetual perpetual forge of idols. Mm-hmm. Um, that the human mind just just makes idols. Now, in that section, he's mainly talking about um, he's 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 framing the uh, use of images in Catholic and Orthodox piety. Uh, he wants to frame it in a very hardline way as idolatry. Uh, he doesn't want any ambiguity there, and so in, that's the context in which he immediately uses, uh, in which he immediately says that quote. But there is a um, there is a way in that in the book overall that the creation of idols is seen as as this human act of self assertion of replacing the reality of God, the knowledge of the reality of God, with an image of humanity, and that and that is growing out of out of a pride and out of a vanity that rejects. Um, rejects the truth. So in those ways, idolatry, idolatry, pride, vanity, willful ignorance of the true God, um, all of those things are kind of lumped together for Calvin. And in those ways, it plays into the very medieval treatment of pride as a capital sin. So he, it, it, there's, there's a number of times in that book, um, especially in the, in, uh, there's one in the fourth chapter where he talks about um, idolatry being the prideful replacement of of the true God with human imaginings. Um, there, there's a way in which that that first book is is doing, I think, something similar to what Tertullian's doing, but the Middle Ages are sitting between it, and so it's not just idolatry itself; it's idolatry as pride and then pride as the thing from which human sins grow. Our, our idols very rarely make us look worse. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we create our idols because they are idols for whom we are the faithful servants. You know, we're, you know our, our, our idolatrous views of the human condition tend to make us look better, not worse than, than we are. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I so, find this I find this to be one of the very best passages of Calvin, and one of the one of the things that I, is is very true. I mean that that the human the human mind is not I try not to use computer metaphors when talking about people, but the hum, the human the human mind is not wired, if you will, to 
to worship God, but to run away from him mm-hmm. ever, ever since the fall, perhaps, I don't know, but, but like we are these just perpetual idol makers to, to the point where I wonder if every act of theology is in some sense an act of idolatry. Well, uh, in, a, in, I, I, I think in a very real sense, every, every act of theology is, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a it's a constant fight against the idolatrous urge by a submission to um by a submission to revelation you know mm-hmm. that you know that's that's the way i would characterize it is constantly fighting my my instinct to make a god i want to be there by <laughs> insistently listening to what i didn't say but right. what and, god said mm mm-hmm. And this train of thought shows up later, I mean, in atheist critics of religion, I mean, especially Ludwig, Fe- Ludwig Feuerbach, I just switched some consonants there, yep. uh, you know, in his book on the essence of Christianity, you know, he famously says that all religion is simply a projection of, you know, the highest aspirations of humanity onto the heavens. Yep. Uh, and of course, I mean, you know, the the amusing thing is to watch people accuse those who differ from themselves of doing that, you know, uh, you know, you have your picture of God because, you know, it resembles what you want God to be. Oh, no, no. You only think that God is like that because that's how you want God to be. I've got the real <laughs> God over here. Uh, yeah. and you know, I, you know, since I'm a pox on both your houses type of personality anyway, I, I rather enjoy watching those rhetorical barbs go back and forth. But, but here's the, here's the deal about Calvinism. Yeah, and I'm I'm broadly a Calvinist. I I imagine I'm not as Calvinist as Grubbs. I'm not as Calvinist as some of our listeners, but I do attend a Presbyterian church and identify as a Calvinist. Calvinism is at its best when it when it focuses inward, right? So when the message of original sin is not so much everybody else is terrible and you can't believe anybody anything anybody says, but I'm terrible. And I need to make sure what I'm saying is true. My heart mm-hmm. is an, a factory for idols. Yeah. Then, then Calvinism becomes a, a very effective, helpful Christian thing. When it when it becomes the other thing, I, I've been I've been rereading um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's short stories this summer, and mm-hmm. and I, I never liked Young Goodman Brown until I read it this summer. I seem to have this this thing with Hawthorne where I don't think I like him, and then I, it turns out I really do. But Young Goodman Brown is all <laughs> about all about that other way of thinking about original sin, about the yep. factories for idols. Young Goodman Brown, just to give you the, the quick version, um, goes into the forest where he sees everybody in town uh, doing something for the devil. It's not quite worshiping, but it's it's not far off. There's some sort of diabolic ceremony. And when he comes back from it, he he takes exactly the wrong message, which is everybody is everybody is wicked at heart, and thus I can't trust anybody, and I have to close myself off from them. Rather than mm-hmm. everybody is wicked at heart, and thus I should extend the grace that I need. Um, but but see, Calvinism go can be taken too far in this other direction, where the 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 heart is a factory for idols except for mine, because I get to be the standard of what good theology looks like. And we've all encountered those Calvinists on the internet and they make the rest of us look bad. But, but if, but if, but if, 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 if you read, if you read Calvin and you take that as, as, oh man, when I speak theologically, I need to make sure that what I'm doing is not creating idols. Uh, Mm -hmm. At at Mm -hmm. that point, I think, um, I think Calvinism is, is a, is a good thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I and Merrill Westfall has a famous line too. Uh, he brings this, or used to bring. He's retired now. Uh, used to bring this to his uh, philosophy of religion classes. He says, uh, "I've never prayed a prayer except to an idol." Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you know, he, you know, he does that. You know, sort of for a Wittgenstein shake 'em up moment. But uh, you know, the idea that any conception of God that he can formulate is by definition his own image and that, you know, the hope of prayer is not that he can conceive of the proper object of prayer, but rather that there is someone who hears. Right. Well, and you can, I mean, that's even kind of a Pauline, uh, a kind of a Pauline move. Like when the, the phrase that, you know, then in the, in the eschatological moment, then we will know even as we are known. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And you just you and just hope the grace is big enough to cover all that the idols isn't you've made. Yet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, please, Lord. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that I mean that that's the point. You you read Calvin and and he makes a lot of people angry because he seems to be pointing fingers. But I I think I think there's at least a reading of that part of the Institutes where the person he's accusing most of all is himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Michael, uh, I want to move on to section five of this treatise where Tertullian starts making an extended and in my mind, troubling argument that Christians whose occupations have them making idols, attending festivals, dedicated idols, selling livestock to be sacrificed as idols, eating meat, uh, sacrificed to idols, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, people whose co-workers watch too much American Idol. Uh, pretty much anyone involved in any way with idols should quit their jobs and suffer poverty rather than to continue in idolatry. Now, my own gut instinct, uh, because I suffer from chronological chauvinism as much as the next guy, <laughs> is to write him off as a quack. But I have a hunch there's something here to which we should pay attention. So, Michael, lead us through some of the ethical engagement with the questions of complicity and the sin of idolatry. And here's where Tertullian and I part, <laughs> right? Because I, I don't disagree that the the heart is an idol factory. I don't disagree that almost everything we do is idolatrous. What I disagree with is, is his, his self-righteous stance about doing this, which is, which is there, there's no, there's none of that self-condemnation I just talked about. Here in Tertullian, this this is all everything you were doing, and, and and I mean the list you gave is an exaggeration, if only because he doesn't know what American Idol is, <laughs> but it's not much of an exaggeration. It it really does seem like almost every occupation that is not entirely a religious vocation is wicked, because it 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 bumps up against something that bumps up against something that bumps up against idolatry. Mm-hmm. And and I think what bothers me most is his use of classical rhetoric to make this case, because if, <laughs> yeah. if classical rhetoric isn't implicated in idolatry, I don't know what would be. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, th- this this comes from this comes from the same sources that create these awful festivals he hates so much. And and mm-hmm. so I, I, I he's so strident and so aggravating about it. It's not for nothing that um, when H. Richard Niebuhr was putting together Christ and Culture, um, which is a, a classic book about the way Christians have over time engaged or refused to engage with the culture surrounding them, Tertullian is his example of Christ against culture, and and mm-hmm. um, I think he's he's very. Um, Accurate about what he says. Here, here he says, Tertullian combines a rigorous morality of obedience to Christ's commandments, including not only love of the brothers but of enemies, non-resistance to evil, prohibitions of anger, and the lustful look. He is as strict a Puritan in his interpretation of what Christian faith demands and conduct as one can find. He replaces the positive and warm ethics of love, which characterizes the first letter of John, with a largely negative morality. Avoidance of sin and fearsome preparation for the coming day of judgment seem more important than thankful acceptance acceptance of God's grace and the gift of his son. And that's what I don't see in Tertullian. I don't see grace. I don't, I don't see any sense that, yeah, we're all guilty of idolatry. And, and basically there's no way to move about in the world without forming more idols. And even, even doing theology, as we said, is, is at least an opportunity to form more idols. There's no sense that I can find in on idolatry that, we do these things and thus we are in need of grace. It's just don't do them. Don't do anything that is related to them. Don't do anything that a Martian could mistake for doing them and <laughs> then you'll be okay. And that's, that's why I say that, that I, I think you can see that, that rigorous ethics of Montanism here in the, uh, e- even this early in his career. And, and actually the edition I read of on idolatry says specifically there's no Montanism in this treatise, and maybe that's true, but you can mm-hmm. you can see him moving in that direction, but by this just utter refusal to understand that yeah we're all guilty of this, and that must mean something more than don't do it. <laughs> it seems unavoidable, 
to say nothing, I mean, I made the joke about sacrificing meat, to, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. St. Paul says, don't, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols if there's somebody in your church or your family or your community who thinks that that's wicked. But really, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you, you know, yeah. what, what's important is the reasons you're doing it. You know, you, you, you eat that meat sacrificed to idols for Christ and you're fine. You're covered. It's not, it, it's not the same thing. Um, I, I don't see any sense where Tertullian understands that. Am I am I misreading him? Am I not being charitable enough? Well, I mean, uh, he starts off by talking about craftsmen who are specifically making idols for for veneration. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I would. You know, I, I think I would agree with Tertullian. Yeah, Christians ought not to be actually manufacturing the actual images that people worship. And then he shades off into, well, what if you're selling the incense that gets burned to them? Or what if you're an architect or a construction worker who helped build the edifice in which they are worshipped? Or you make a, dec- a decorative frieze or mosaic um, or a mural, a stucco, you know, you know, I can't remember the, the precise term for painting on wet stucco. Fresco, yes, um, of the pagan gods. Well, that's, that's implicated too. So he, he does have this kind of concentric circle thing, and it's easier to move with him from, from the closest circle to, from, from one circle to the next than it is to just immediately go, and if you're selling cows, you're implicated in idolatry because you don't see him getting there. Now, I, I don't know that, you know, it's it's going to be kind of difficult to police, you know, when you're selling an ox, what the guy who buys the ox does with it. But if you're a Christian painter, you know, painting Zeus in a shrine for Zeus, you you do know what you're doing. Um. And he does have that argument in chapter 11 where he says, look, a man that can build a temple can build other things too. A man that can build a shrine can make a, a chest. A person that can paint you know, something with religious significance can paint things that don't have religious significance. There are ways that you can, you know, he says, he's telling craftsmen, you're, you're not giving up your livelihood. What you're doing is you're giving up your most lucrative contracts. So... Mm-hmm. So settle for making <laughs> less money on simpler work instead of taking the prestigious uh, cultic work. Uh, mm-hmm. That cult, cultic in the sense of things having to do with the cult of the particular um, of the particular deity. Right, I religious mean, art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, he does he does get pretty far when he gets into public holidays and what kinds of weddings you can go to. Right, right. I mean, he would. And, I, I don't think I don't yeah. think it would be an exaggeration to say that saying it's January would be a form of idolatry to him because January is named after Janus. Aren't you? Aren't you implicitly recognizing the existence of this pagan god? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, but I mean, I guess that's 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 why I say that there are concentric circles, and it's it's easier for me to follow him in the earlier circles, and it's rhetorically easy to follow him the whole way through. But when you jump straight from idolatry is bad, so don't call it January, then I think you see, uh, maybe maybe this doesn't hang together as well as it should. But he does he does seem to be giving some kind of thought to the I'm a craftsman, what I'm gonna do for a living question. Mm-hmm. You know, when he says, you know, you can build furniture <laughs> or whatever. Uh, I hope of, I, I just hope no shrines by your chairs. Yeah, well, yeah, ex- ex- exactly. But given that they're in a culture um in which there weren't big furniture warehouses, but with, in which all all handicrafts were was was bespoke. I mean, every chair was an ordered chair. Yeah, that's so, true. You know, mm-hmm. is that is that guy the priest of the shrine? I right. don't sell, I don't sell chairs to him. <laughs> well, and then I guess the reason I found this so interesting, and honestly, the reason I wanted to talk about this treatise is his chain of logic here. Uh, and I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but what else is new? 
reminds me of a lot, not of conservative Christians in 2014, but of more sort of progressive liberal Protestants, especially in their arguments over, you know, uh, is it wrong to eat a chicken sandwich? Is it wrong to buy your yarn at Hobby Lobby? You uh, know, the, conser- the conservatives <laughs> do it too, though. Yeah, the, yeah, but not, the, but not as strikingly. Oh, yes, they lately. do. I, okay, the, the, and I mean, think, think about, think about the court cases about bakers who don't want to make wedding cakes for gay marriages. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is, what is that if not a 21st century update of Tertullian's argument? That, that in in making a cake for a gay wedding, I'm saying I approve of gay marriage. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, so so it's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, on one hand, you're right. I mean, this whole idea that you know a a cattle rancher in 2014 probably you know sells his cattle without any idea of where precisely the sirloin is going to end up. But then on the other hand, I mean, we do have these cases where Tertullian. If nothing else, is an interesting conversation partner in these kinds of conversations. I think his spirit mm-hmm. certainly lives on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and to me, I mean the 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 modern commercial world is so complex. I mean, there's not a company you can buy anything from who's not doing something terrible, or who's not giving money to another company that's doing something terrible. So what mm-hmm. do you do about it? The solution can't be to not buy anything. It can't be to just make everything for yourself. You can't actually do that. I don't think I don't think it's actually possible to live in that world anymore. So, I mean, what do you do? You recognize, as I always say, life is guilt. Yeah. You're you're going to you're going to support things you don't necessarily want to support and there's nothing you can do about that. And th- yeah, that should keep you up at night. Yeah. So so that company, But then on the other hand, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. I mean that com- that company might have supported a political candidate that you opposed, or it might have, you know, bought hummus from Israeli farms or <laughs> or whatever. But ultimately, it's so it it is very messy. And is it really our job to do all that research to find out? You're you're responsible for what you give money to, right? Even even if even if you're just responsible on a tiny, minute level. Well, and then, but I mean, to go back to the concentric circles that David was mentioning earlier, I think that there is a place for serious ethical deliberation of how much attention is reasonable to expect from a person, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, just to give an extreme example to show that at least on an extreme, it would be sensible. I mean, you know, uh, to buy unidentified stakes from a dogfighting ring is probably something that, you know, a, a responsible person ethically probably shouldn't do. Do dogfighting rings sell meat? If they did, <laughs> I would not buy steaks from them. Yeah. Should that be the case? <laughs> That's a good rule of thumb. I think we can all agree on that one. But my point is that, I mean, I, I think the temptations are twofold. I mean, to go back to those Aristotelian uh, extremes that we were talking about earlier, on the one hand, I mean, there's the extreme of saying, okay, uh, I'm not going to buy this chicken sandwich because it makes me complicit in political sin A, B, or C. On the other hand, mm-hmm. there's also a sort of nihilistic uh, disregard for our actual connections in an economic system. So, I mean, right. you know, I, I'm not saying, Michael, that your position is that nihilistic no. disregard. But I'm saying that that kind of nihilistic regard is something that poses a danger just as much as the silly boycott does. Mm-hmm. My point is you're guilty whether you do the boycott or not. And not that it doesn't matter, which would be the nihilistic disregard, right? You're guilty so it doesn't matter. No, it matters. You're, you're uh-huh. actually responsible for these things. When you buy your computer, you're responsible for the exploitation of the workers who made it. Mm-hmm. 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 And 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 I I assume that one day you're going to have to answer for it. Yeah, but th- well, th- and, this is what yeah. grace is about. I hope. Well, and it, well, I I hope so too because well, there there's a Tertullian principle in chapter eleven. It's this. I mean, this phrase: "In no case ought I to be necessary to another while he is doing what to me is unlawful." And the more I turned that over in my head, the more I was like, 
when has that happened? How often has that happened? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. I mean, have I ever given money to a homeless guy who went off and got drunk and, you know, you know, abused his family or or have I? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Mm hmm. And how could I? Certainly your tax dollars have funded things that whatever your political orientation, you find <laughs> abhorrent, right? I mean, yep. there's no way around that except to not pay your taxes. And, and, and then you go and to jail. Tertullian. And Tertullian's tax dollars, let's be fair. And he never actually says don't pay taxes, mm -hmm. which, which is interesting. Thoreau uh, didn't pay. You know. He went to jail because he didn't, he didn't want his money supporting the Mexican-American War. Then his aunt paid uh, paid his bail and paid his I think it was his aunt paid his paid his taxes. So I mean, I don't see. I thought it was Emerson who bailed him out. I, I think it was his aunt, but I don't. I may just okay. be, I may just be making that up. Somebody well, no, somebody did is, somebody did is the point. And and at that point, if he steps out of the prison, isn't 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 he still profiting? Is isn't right, isn't right. it still his responsibility? Well, it... <laughs> Should he have said no, Grandma? Or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. You, you know. I, I like. I said. Not I, one I, more I, penny. I don't like this treatise, but I like this conversation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's why I wanted to read this one together because, especially in the last, I'm I'm going to say two years, just as a broad category, there have been so many conversations about complicity in a very complex economic system, mm -hmm. and it seems like that's precisely what Tertullian's getting at. And although this is, you know, his, uh, you know, large bore cannon personality coming out, uh, I, I think that, you know, at the very least, it is a position against which we can react. Yeah, and 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 as we said, it's a position that still exists. Well, and it's a position that still exists and doesn't have a particular sectarian flavor. Right. Yeah, it's right. Because oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah Non-Christians. Yeah, it's not. It's have, not like have this, a, have this position. Yes, yes. Yeah, don't don't buy makeup from this company because they test it on animals. Don't don't or, uh, don't don't order pizza from Domino's because they support uh, right to life groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the it's it's the whole the whole logic of the boycott is Tertullian's logic. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's 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 incredibly fascinating how little different we are. <laughs> to, to defend to defend Tertullian for just a second, he actually the the logic of the boycott is is his kind of. Um, he oh, actually okay. he, okay. he okay, actually he actually suggests going way further than that, right? He says if 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 you have to be an idolater to do these things, you should live in poverty. Presumably, you should starve yourself to death rather than become complicit in these things. Most boycotters aren't going to mm -hmm. go that far. Most boycotters will boycott Disney World and go to Universal Studios. <laughs> yeah, just, just to just to name the big boycott that was going on when I was a teenager in the Southern Baptist mm -hmm. Church. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Let's go to Six Flags. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or eat yourself a Rainbow Whopper. Right, right. There's no, there's no, there's no genuine <laughs> sacrifice there, uh, as opposed to a boycott like the uh, Birmingham bus boycott. Right. I mean, where there really was a sacrifice, that was the way those folks got around. They had no other way to get around. Yeah. So I mean, there's right, boycotts, right. there's boycotts, and then there's boycotts, and 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 the the ethical rigor of Tertullian is something both to be criticized and admired in a certain way, just like you admire Thoreau for going to jail, even if it was for just a night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and and if if Tertullian was writing about you know just just to kind of I mean for for him the sin of idolatry is huge; it's the biggest one. So if if we if we put on our you know contemporary hats and said okay genocide all right yeah. okay so i'm not going to actually kill everyone who's you know of a particular ethnicity but i'm gonna be a contractor to build the camp in which it happens mm -hmm. or i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be their caterer if genocides have caterers i you know i, I, I mean, don't, don't want to see the craft service table for the genocide <laughs> Yeah, I, I I know that I, I know that sounds absurd, but when you but when you I mean change it change it to a sin that makes your gut turn, 
And Tertullian sounds less crazy. He sounds less crazy, except there he doesn't go far enough. We're all yeah. responsible for the genocide. We all profit from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he sets a, he sets up idolatry in terms that it's that it's inescapable, and then says, "No, now let's parse how to escape it." But it, it's it's as if the particularities of the of the of the latter two thirds of this thing don't line up with the ultimacy of the rhetoric of the first third. Yeah. No, that's, that's mm-hmm. a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Right, uh. right. Well, David, uh, at my request, uh, Michael <laughs> stayed away from the conversation that was really, I mean, most pertinent to three of us, namely Tertullian's injunctions that one, that one ought not to be a teacher of letters. Mm. Um, you can be a student but not a teacher. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, it's kind of ironic since, you know, probably people who teach the liberal arts are the only ones who read Tertullian 800, 1,800 years later. But <laughs> <laughs> what does Tertullian have to say about folks who teach literature and rhetoric? And again, what reading strategies might help us to engage these arguments faithfully as well as intelligently? Okay, I'm going to pick up that first one, or that, that last thing you said first, reading strategies to help us engage the arguments faithfully. Because I think our contemporary gut is to say, oh, Tertullian, you so crazy. <laughs> All right. And just just kind of set him off on the side. Um, but we need to, I think, recognize that some of that is, well, a lot of that is chronological snobbery and the fact that things really were very different for Tertullian. All right. Um, you know, when he talks about uh, teach a teacher of letters as being one who basically catechizes uh, his pupils in the gods and their names and their traits and their exploits. Um, that was that was the common curriculum. That was what was expected. Um, not necessarily of the first level of Roman education, where they were just kind of taught basic literacy, but um, in in the second level grammar school. Uh, they're 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 memorizing chunks of poetry. They're they're analyzing poetic language and poetic discourse. They're composing it. They're performing it. And what they're using is um, the Homeric verse, uh, other other literary works of uh, pagan Rome, pagan Greece. Um, Augustine in his Confession talks about um, crying over the sadness of Dido being jilted by Aeneas. Um, as as being something that misled him in his grammar education, you know. So, so when Tertullian talks about this, he's talking about being a teacher in a school in which teaching literacy means using a curriculum that catechizes your students in the act of religion of the day. Um, if he has a failure, it's a failure of imagination a failure of imagining that there could be a, a Christian teacher who in, interacted with Homeric poetry in a different way than the traditional curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that was an entire failure of imagination or just a rhetoric, <laughs> a, a rhetorical failure, because we know that Tertullian himself will, will interact with Homeric myth um, religious tenets and things like that, because he doesn't in his apologetics. Um, it's not as if he won't ever talk about that stuff. He will, but he'll do it in his polemical treatises. He'll do it in his apologies against um, pagan religion. Um, you know, that if if there's anything, yeah, it se- it seems to me that that yes, Tertullian overplays his hand. But it's because I think in his time he couldn't imagine a different hand. He couldn't mm-hmm. imagine someone teaching a Greco-Roman myth class like I do, in which Greco-Roman paganism is dead, and we look at it as an interesting curiosity. Hmm. You know. What would you add, Michael? Where am I wrong? <laughs> no, and I think that's a. It, it would be it would be closer to teaching a, a religion class. I suppose you're right. Yeah. Then to, uh, but I mean, the the, the word catechizing, I, I think, is a, is a good one. That 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 that's what he's that's what he's most concerned about here. Mm-hmm. But it, but again, I don't think he goes far enough. 
I don't I don't think he I don't think he recognizes the degree to which his rhetorical training has been idolatrous and that he continues to use it and to profit from it and to 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 do Christian things with it. Mm-hmm. To what to what degree he's still culpable? Mm-hmm. You know, he would wear um I can't remember the the Greek name for it, but he he would wear the philosopher's mantle. Um and actually uh there was some outrage about it why why he a Christian um a Christian clergyman was wearing philosopher's dress and he actually wrote a little uh he he wrote a little treatise defending it because he he claimed we we're the true philosophy so i get to dress like a philosopher <laughs> you know niebuhr uh niebuhr says that Tertull- when, when tertullian went out of his way to say all the uh ancient greek philosophers were wrong about everything and when they were mm-hmm. writing about something it was because they stole it from scripture yes i don't know i i haven't read enough tertullians to know if that's true but the, uh, that is definitely what niebuhr claims of him i've written in the margin i read this book about 10 years ago i've written in the margin what <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. It was, it was very common. Uh, not not just Tertullian, but several several fathers would. Everything the pagans got right, they they ripped off of Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's much easier to say there's this thing called common grace, and and <laughs> and you know people are are right sometimes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that highlights Michael. I mean, one of the reasons why it's so interesting to read really early figures like Tertullian. Mm-hmm. is because they haven't developed those tools yet. So we actually get to watch them working out the dialectic of, okay, how is it that we talk about our relationships to these cultures that obviously exhibit a certain degree of wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at Tertullian's point, I mean, Niebuhr's actually absolutely right. I mean, you know, the best move they could come up with was there must be some concrete historical link between King Solomon and Socrates, Right. Uh, It's much later on that, you know, more sophisticated doctrines of common grace as a sort of zeitgeist phenomenon come about. Well, just Justin Martyr had his his notion of the logos being um, the seed of rationality in all human beings. Yeah. Um, But his didn't really catch on so much as the whole intellectual genealogy approach did. Right, right, sense. and yeah, and I, I'm, I guess I overstated that, David. I didn't mean to say that it wasn't present, but it yeah. hadn't become <laughs> ascend, it, it hadn't become ascendant in the way that it had by the time of a John Calvin or even a Thomas Aquinas. Right, there was one guy saying it, but <laughs> he didn't have much of a following in saying it. Right, right, and and again, I mean, I I, I, I don't know if this is just my dirty laundry episode, but I mean. I, I read these discussions and I think of, you know, strong conversations both among conservative evangelicals and among more liberal types about, you know, what is it that one should teach in a literature class, right? You know, should we teach right. the so-called old white dead men, you know, because they are part of a system that we cannot back anymore? Uh, or on the other hand, I mean, you know, should we teach deconstruction and postmodernism because they are the downfall of Christianity, uh, and, you know, I, I know the way that my own uh, teaching philosophy and those sorts of things deal with those questions, but it's mm-hmm. fascinating, like I said, to look at someone like Tertullian for whom those tools are not available, working it out with the tools that he has available to him. Yeah. And, and incidentally, he is much nicer to English teachers than Augustine. Because Tertullian <laughs> says at least everybody should be trained in this stuff. Yeah. Augustine yeah. says you're wasting your time reading the Aeneid, or at least that's what he says in in the um, Confessions. I know he changes his tune about that later on um, yeah. to some extent, but right. I mean this this was this was not a a uh, unheard of opinion in the in the early church. No, right, not, right. Not at all. And this is another one of those situations where you know uh, you can strongly disagree with somebody else, and you can both be citing Augustine. <laughs> and you're both right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and yeah, yeah, and that that particular bit in Augustine um where he's talking about not ringing the Aeneid, it's it's also a testament to the power of the literature because the reason why he wants to 
you know, shield the young and impressionable from the Aeneid is because it is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because he wept for Dido and he feels so foolish years, years, years and years later because his, his emotions were so engaged by this. Fiction. What he, yeah. What he thought was a probably fictional character in a pagan story. And he, he, he feels, he feels as if his, uh, his affections had been, had been trapped and turned in a direction that they shouldn't have gone. You know, so it, it, it's, it's really a testimony to the power of, or, of Virgil. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look, I'm going to start looking towards the exit here. Uh, as we have seen already, this is one of those texts that invites the reader to do parallel intellectual work in one's own historical moment using tools that are available to oneself that weren't available to, to Tertullian. Now, for him, there are certain, there are simply some professions whose everyday workings constitute either idolatry or complicity in idolatry. So, finish us off here, pointing us towards some further dialectic. What kinds of questions can we learn to ask by reading Tertullian that might help us to imagine the strained relationship between work and faith? And in what ways does he help by showing us how and how not to go about things? I'm afraid I've I've uh, shown my hand already. I think I'm probably just going to repeat myself <laughs> here. But I, I think the value of this sort of argument is that it encourages us, encourages us to see the universality of our guilt. In everything we do, we are either being directly idolatrous ourselves, in which case you really got to look at it, or we are complicit in other people's idolatry, or we are being used by those who would use other people and so forth, this line of, this chain of idolatry. And we're always implicated, and there's there's really no way out of that. And what he keeps us from doing, I think, is sliding into what you described earlier as a kind of blasé nihilism about it, to say, what does it matter? It does matter, and he points out why it matters. Um, But what I think... I think what he again I'm I'm repeating myself but what what he fails to say is there's no escaping it and yet it still matters. So reading him can allow us to walk the line that needs to be walked even if I don't think he himself walks it properly. Yeah, I I, I agree I agree with you Michael. Um cuz we're all either inclined we're inclined to fall off of that horse on one way or another, fall off on the, well, there's nothing we can do about it and shrug our shoulders or fall off on the cannons of blazing all the time, boycott everything. I'm just going to sit here and <laughs> starve because at least then I'm innocent. Um, and whichever way we tend to fall off the horse, Tertullian's going to push us the other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I I think that's, I think that 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 is helpful. So I'm 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 going to second Michael on this one. All right, very good. I and I guess I'll just sort of wrap up by saying that you know, one of the troubling things about this treatise for me is that I know full well that my own tendency is to poke fun at those people who are selectively passionate about this or that boycott while ignoring the half dozen other things that I could name off the, off the top of my head that are more worthy of boycotting. Uh, (laughs) but as, as Michael noted, I mean, Tertullian doesn't therefore let us say, well, then we can just, you know, mock and, you know, uh, avoid spending time on the terrace of the slothful in purgatory. Uh, we're still going to spend that time in the slothful in purgatory, uh, precisely because we don't care enough about those things. Now, one of the questions that it prompts us to, and I think Michael's been hitting this over and over this episode, is, you know, what, therefore, is the character of a good human relationship to larger forces that we cannot control, but we might be able to bump a little bit? Uh, And, I mean, my own tendency, you know, I'm just trying to, to confess my own sins here, is to say, I'm not actually going to change anything by boycotting disney so you know throw the vhs tape in because i'm old but you know (laughs) i realize full well that that is a vice rather than a 
virtue. So, uh, you know, I, I, I get a little bit nervous when Michael, you know, goes into his everything is guilt thing, because if everything is guilt, then nothing is more guilty than anything else. Uh, but I also have to acknowledge that if I am honest about it, I can't escape those tentacles either. So, uh, once again, I, I disagree with Michael, but I can't for the life of me say why. You know, think of <laughs> think think back to the ending of Flannery O'Connor's Revelation, uh-huh. and you've got Mrs. Turpin has this vision of a line of people in a river of fire that's coming down from heaven, and they're all walking up there. And, and the last people in line are the virtuous people, her and her husband, and people I think she says who've, who've had a little bit of everything and the God-given sense to use it right. And what what she notices is even their virtues are being bor- burned away. That's a biblical yeah. idea, right? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Mm. Not just because we can't save ourselves, but because in the grand scheme of things, even when we're doing it right, it, it's it's bad. <laughs> or it's not good enough anyway. Right. Even, even your virtues are going to be burned away. So even when you're standing on the right side of whatever political or social argument you're on, even then you're doing it wrong. Right. And there's no way for you to do it right. And I can agree with that, and at the same time, I see a grand danger in saying, let us therefore sin more so that grace may abound. I'm not saying that either. <laughs> no, but that's where it heads. Well, that, that, that's why you have to say more than one thing, Nathan. Well, yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And Christianity, I, and I, and Christianity is a religion of saying two things at once. Are, and, you, are you really going to pull G.K. Chesternet out on me? Heck yeah, I'm going to pull out G.K. Chesternet <laughs> on you. All right. Now, well, that, now that's some heavy lifting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh! I threw out my back. <laughs> All right. Yep. Well, since since now I've been put in my place by both of my co-hosts, uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up there. Uh, next episode, we're actually going to start a new tradition, namely the listener feedback episode. Uh, Michael, I believe you will be curating that one. Yeah, it, I, yeah. Have I forgotten? It'll, it'll go in a different order than our normal curation. So think of yes, that as an yes. episode without a curator. It's curated yes, by yes. the emails you've sent us. We already have enough for the whole episode, but uh, by all means, if you want to, uh, if you write, want to write in, send us some more. Yeah, dude, I was just going to say that. I'm sorry, Nathan. I'm sorry. I just, I just can't. <laughs> I just can't help taking over. That's all right. That's all right. So, good listeners. <laughs> Uh, until that time, when we get that uh, listener feedback episode up there, remember you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on Facebook. You can go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, write us glowing, nice things. Uh, you can also go to Facebook to find the Christian Feminist Podcast. You can also go to iTunes to find Christian Humanist Podcast, Christian Feminist Podcast, and Christian Humanist Profiles. Man, oh, man, that's like awful lot of good internet out there to be had you can also email us at the christian humanist at gmail.com so while you are doing all of those glorious things i'm going to go ahead and sign off here this is nathan gilmore for david grubbs and michael farmer saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger Association.